This week, Oracle made a massive announcement for Nashville, which is pretty exciting. We'll be diving into that, as well as this sector of retail that is actually doing surprisingly well despite COVID. And are charging stations everything that they are built up to be? It seems like a lot of people have been talking about the future of charging stations and how that can attract consumers to shopping centers and office buildings. But we're going to dive into that and see if it is actually all it is meant to be. Welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Investor Weekly Update. I'm Tyler Cobble, your host, and today is April 19th. Let's dive into this week's news, starting with the Nashville market. So like I said, Oracle made a massive announcement this week in the River North section of uh, really East Nashville, uh, where they plan to bring a record-breaking 8,500 jobs to the riverfront in Nashville. So that is a that shatters previous a previous record that Amazon actually had a couple of years ago, which was 5,000 jobs, um, which is absolutely mind-boggling, honestly, uh, for that many jobs to be coming to Nashville. You think about how many people that they are going to have to move to the city in order to accommodate this because there won't be 8,500 people here to hire. Um, the Nashville job market is relatively tight. So this is an article from the Nashville Business Journal, uh, and they will be um, transforming about 70 acres of industrial riverfront land into a 21st century tech hub. So uh, it looks like some lobbyists detailed the potential campus uh, in an email to Metro Council members, um, which the National Business Journal got their hands on. They, I mean, it's just, it's absolutely amazing how much this eclipses the 5,000 jobs that Amazon announced a few years ago. Uh, looks like, uh, you know, Oracle's been interested in Nashville for a couple of years. They finally got a project, um, at least to where they can go public um, and talk about what's going on, right? I mean, it's it's a big deal. When you're talking about moving 8,500 jobs to a city, there are a ton of, of uh, different, uh, I guess, you know, there's a bunch of red tape you've got to get through um, in order to, to really pull that off because, there's going to be some city incentives, probably, maybe, maybe some state incentives um, that could really help determine that. Because when a, when a company that big decides to move, I mean, they're going to be looking at the cities that are going to give them the most. And it's no surprise that Nashville is one of those cities. I mean, Tennessee is a very business-friendly uh, environment. So that would actually make Nashville uh, one of the smallest but fastest-growing tech markets, which is pretty, pretty, pretty cool. Uh, we would go about, uh, looks like we would really be moving towards our goal of doubling the region's tech workforce by 2025. And they're going to draw some pretty talented people to Nashville. I mean, it looks like out of those 8,500 employees, the average, the average salary will be six figures. It'll be about $110,000 a year. So you think about what that will do, that the quality of workforce that is coming to Nashville and the kind of real estate that they will be buying. They will likely want to live in those downtown condos. They'll want to live in the urban housing uh, that's, you know, the urban core adjacent neighborhoods like East Nashville, Germantown, 12th South, because the commutes will be so minimal compared to everything else that's going on. Pretty exciting to see. So it looks like, uh, you know, they're obviously on the on the East Bank. If you're not familiar with the River North development, that is right where Top Golf is, kind of just north of Nissan Stadium, just on the eastern side of the river from downtown. Uh, we talked about this last week, actually, uh, a little bit about what's going on out there. Um, but uh, they had not announced how many jobs they were potentially bringing. So the, the development is uh, – 
of River North is led by Chicago-based Monroe Investment Partners. They've been assembling this land uh, for, you know, give or take 20 years now, uh, which, you know, that's, that takes a big city mentality to come to Nashville and start assembling land for 20 years. Um, there are multiple projects that are going on over there. It'll be really interesting to see what ends up happening. The, the River North development is, is expected to be one of the largest developments in, um, in Nashville history. Because uh, it will have, I think, originally they announced 16 different towers. Uh, but it will just depend on who ends up coming in and, and developing different sites there. So it looks like uh, Oracle is planning on investing up to $1.2 billion into, uh, into their infrastructure here. Uh, which, which, could in, which obviously includes the building, but that's also going to include everything else. All of their other investment, which could, you know is, is people too, right? Um, and they're planning to build 1.2 million square feet of office space over the next 10 years. 1.2 million square feet. You know, we keep talking about how office space isn't going anywhere. Why would a tech giant like Oracle go out and build 1.2 million square feet if office was if office was going by the wayside? So they'll be rolling out uh, the they'll be rolling out the employment. It looks like they'll have 2,500 people at the campus by the end of 2027, and they plan to be at 8,500 by the end of 2031. And uh, the business journal is saying here, don't be surprised if the company hits those targets faster. Uh, looks like companies often err on the side of conservative estimates as their incentives are usually tied to those projections and include clawback provisions if they fall short. So uh, that means basically they, they're committing to 8,500 by 2031 uh, at the latest. So they could certainly come in faster. So there you go, uh, right there, $110,000 a year. Um, it, these employees will be software engineers, sales, and consultants. And to put that $110,000 median salary in perspective, Davidson County's median household income is about $60,000. So twice the median uh, income for the whole county. So, I mean, that's a pretty – that's huge for Davidson County. Let's see what incentives they've been talking about. Um, Governor Bill Lee and Bob Rolfe, Commissioner of the State Department of Economic and Community Development, have, shepherd, have been shepherding this deal. I know they've been working on this for a couple of years. Uh, looks like Lee has made at least two trips to California to personally pitch Oracle's top executives. That's awesome. Got a governor that's willing to go out there and, and really uh, fight to get these kinds of companies. That you know, that that's a massive impact on not only you know our workforce but also our tax base. I mean, that's big for Davidson County. Looks like they will receive among the largest incentive packages in state history, according to multiple sources, uh, which has not been negotiated or which has not been disclosed yet. Um, again, not surprising, right? I mean, it's one of the biggest jobs announcements in state history, so of course they're likely going to have one of the largest uh, incentive packages in state history. Looks like uh, Mayor Cooper has negotiated a financing plan of one hundred and seventy-five million dollars of infrastructure on the site that would not require funds from Metro's operating budget or new debt. Uh, interesting. I like that. <laughs> I'm sure uh, Davidson County and, and all the residents like that too. So that's uh, that's a pretty big announcement uh, for River North. I mean, it's a pretty big announcement for Nashville. It's it's a huge announcement for Tennessee too. I mean, just the, the gravity of, of how large this uh, this announcement is cannot be understated. And let's put that into even more perspective, Tyler, right? 8,500 jobs means, you know, you have 8,500 people working there, and those people tend to have families, you know? So let's 
put that at you know 16,000, 17,000 residents. And these are these higher end white collar jobs. And typically, you know, you need one to two blue collar jobs to serve every single white collar job. So potentially, you know, just from this, you have 34,000 some residents coming in. That's one year's worth of migration to Nashville. You know, just this one company alone could potentially be representing over the course of the next few years, one year's worth of population in migration to the Nashville scene, which is crazy. And I do want to highlight here too, um, the tax benefits and incentives that they're getting. Apparently it's a pretty good deal for Nashville, um, at least from the Nashville level. They, the incentive package that they mentioned is supposed to be essentially a form of tax increment financing, which includes a pedestrian bridge over the water, which will be huge connecting, you know, the, the riverbanks together. And essentially how that's going to work is they're going to take the same property tax, collect the same amount of property tax, I believe, as they're currently collecting on the site. And then all of the property tax that Oracle would be saving is essentially until they save up the amount of essentially putting their investment in, then they get paid back and then Metro starts collecting property tax after that. But all in all, that's a pretty good deal because Metro doesn't have to come out of pocket and we get you know public infrastructure and bridges out of it. I think that's a win-win for everybody involved. That's exactly right. Tax increment financing or TIFs as they're typically called is, is a great way of incentivizing development. Right, because it, it freezes those taxes, which would otherwise be astronomical, and gives the developers incentives to go in there and do these projects. And then, you know, the, the Davidson County is really going to make its taxes off of all of the sales tax that every single one of these employees will spend by going out to lunch and by shopping in Davidson County. They'll get it off of property taxes from all of these, uh, you know, people coming in here with $110,000 median incomes. They're going to go buy houses, they'll be paying property taxes. You know, there's any number of other taxes that uh, that these residents will be paying that must be considered when when you're talking about this. So, tax increment financing is a, a brilliant way of uh, of putting these deals together. All right, moving on. This one is from the Tennessean. Reappraisal will push property tax rate down. Mayor John Cooper touts record low level. This is really interesting because they just increased property taxes um, about a year ago, right when almost right when COVID hit. And that was it was pretty devastating for a lot of people to see that, you know, not only did we just have a reassessment, we're also getting property taxes increased. And it's in the middle of COVID. So, you know, expenses are going up, but we don't even know if we're going to be making any money anymore. And it was a very controversial. uh, it, It was controversial when it was passed, because that's it's a it was a 34% increase. That's huge, huge, right? And, you know, uh, there are arguments that could be said said that, you know, it needed to happen. uh, But it probably should have been phased in, right? Or, or at least just broken out and not done all at once at that the timing was just really bad. Um, Looks like it will be lowered next year because of a reappraisal requirement mandated by state law. Um, the so state law is very different in Tennessee, um, which is interesting. So the reason that they ended up having to actually raise it, despite Nashville growing, our tax base has not grown because of the way that it works, uh, that uh, property taxes work is every four years they get reassessed. And if my property goes up, 
there has to be another property whose property taxes go down in an equivalent manner so that the city is break even on property taxes, um, which is how that it's just, I don't know, you know, state law. Um, looks like they're still fine tuning the budget, uh, but they expect it, the tax rate to be in line roughly with where it was two years ago. It's pretty interesting. So it was $3.15.5 per $100 of assessed value, so 3.155% basically um, in the city's more urban areas. Uh, it was increased by $1.066, um, so 1.066%. Um, because of the financial crisis that was stemming from all of the losses due to the pandemic. I mean, they, there were, there were, there were talks that, you know, if that, if that increase wasn't passed, that the city wouldn't even have enough money to pick up garbage or, or mow the medians right in between the interstates um, or on not interstates cause that's state controlled, but um, on the, on, you know, public, you know, local roadways. Um, which would be really bad for a city that's trying to grow and attract companies like Oracle, right? You can't have it looking like the city can't take care of itself. So uh, this is this is really interesting to me. I, I would not have thought that they would actually be going back and lowering the, the tax rates. Not upset by it by any means. Would love to see what kind of uh, what kind of budget that they are coming in with so that they can actually make uh, the city maintenance happen because that's you know that's really what these property taxes go towards. Let's see here. It's not clear what rate Cooper will propose later this month as part of his budget. Uh, the new rate could come in higher than the revenue neutral adjustment. Looks like the estimated property values may have increased by about 25%, uh, according to the property assessor Vivian Wilhoyt, um, which means that a dollar, well, that's pretty interesting. A dollar drop from the current rate of 4.221% uh, of assessed value in the city's more urban areas. I mean that that's a pretty significant that's a pretty significant drop. It doesn't really say, I mean, why they're looking at doing this. Um, you know, I guess it's kind of one of those kind of one of those scenarios where you don't really want to argue and ask why uh, they're just doing it. So let's be happy. <laughs> but yeah. Andy, what are your thoughts that's, on that? That's right, Tyler. Uh, we'll just we'll take it right. But as it kind of is, as you said before, it's the state law. So essentially, as a reappraisal happens for four years, the last time it happened was in 2017. It would have happened this year in 2021. Essentially, what's happening is because your property values were about to go up another 25%. So if that happened and you had this previous 34% increase, then, I mean, from two years ago to today in 2021, my tax bill is going to be up like 160%, something crazy, right? Something really bad. So um, essentially, functionally, what this means is that they're having a reassessment, they're having the property values go up, but your rate on that higher value is going to be lower. So your tax bill is going to end up being about the same as it was last year in 2020 when they raised the rates, but it's just going to be less rate on a higher value. So no one's going to see a, a smaller tax bill from this, but that does mean we're not going to have another 25% increase, which is what would have happened if the assessed value also went up. So it is, it's not like oh, everyone's going to get a tax cut, but it is a, the staving off of a, of a tax nightmare growth right there. Exactly. They're just making sure that we don't have a, a very bad year. I mean, I would imagine you'd have a lot of people out there protesting. 
um, over that one. Okay, moving on. General Motors. This is according to the National Business Journal as well. General Motors announces $2.4 billion Spring Hill electric vehicle battery plant on Friday. This is huge because, one, I mean, the, the amount of jobs and, and investment that they're going to be bringing. But, two, it just shows you how much the market is moving towards electric vehicles. I mean, I've, I've got a Tesla. I'm a big fan of electric vehicles. And I think that, uh, you know, plants like this are phenomenal because it's manufacturing, right? And we could always use more manufacturing jobs. It's in a great part of Tennessee. Excited to see what they're doing here. Uh, looks like, uh, let's see here, they're targeting a 2,000-acre manufacturing complex for a battery plant that would span roughly 2.8 million square feet and create 1,300 full-time jobs. So think about that. Uh, this past week, Nashville, Middle Tennessee, has had almost 10,000 jobs announced, which is huge. GM ran a site search uh, for the plant under the code name Project Night Sky. If, if you're not familiar with why these projects do that, it's because they don't want anybody finding out that GM is actually the one that's on the hunt. So they get with the, the government, the chamber, and they call it uh, some sort of project so that nobody knows what's going on. Um, there, there can just be you know some, some sensitive uh, subject matter there that they don't want getting leaked out. Looks like uh, they've got some incentives from Murray County and a 30-year tax break, which is great. Let's see here. Going further into it, it looks like they held a press conference over at the Tennessee State Museum, and they – oh, interesting. Uh, looks like they are – they've declared that by 2035 they will be making only electric-powered vehicles. So as a part of that quest, GM last fall – announced a $1.7 billion overhaul to its Spring Hill factory to begin making electric vehicles. So that's a, that's a pretty big announcement. I mean, you think about the just Spring Hill alone, which is one of the one of the faster-growing suburbs of Nashville. It's about 35, maybe 45 minutes outside of town, depending on traffic. Um, you know, that's that's huge for that part of the world. I mean, now not only are they manufacturing the vehicles down there, but they're also going to be manufacturing the batteries. Um, looks like with that announcement, GM will double down on Spring Hill and break its own record for the biggest announced business investment in state history. So that's that's pretty cool. I mean, let's see here. Yeah, battery plant represents a 40% boost to their current headcount. So that's that's pretty impressive. I mean, big news for Spring Hill, big news for Middle Tennessee. You know, and of course, it makes a lot of sense for them to be moving that manufacturing plant here. I mean, yes, of course, they've got the electric vehicle, um, you know, plant down there uh, where they're already planning to to manufacture the vehicles. But also think about it. If you are going to be a manufacturer, being in Middle Tennessee is a phenomenal location for you because you can ship just about anything uh, across the country. And, and I mean, you can reach, what, 80 percent of the, the country's population in a day's drive. So you think about, you know, of course, they're going to have to ship cars. You can't just you can't just load them up on a plane. So they've got to drive. So you think about the accessibility from Nashville to all of the interstates, north, south, east, and west. Very easy to get around um, and ship those ship those cars across the country. Andy, anything you want to add to that? Not really, Tyler. Just the big overall takeaway. Nashville yeah. is booming, y'all. So welcome in. 
we're we're gonna be happy to see you all when you guys come down right like it, everyone's coming here so th there's a reason why we spend so much time covering not just because we live here. yeah it's like <laughs> we have oracle on our side we have gm on our side we have amazon on our side and if you want to scroll actually to that table at the very bottom there tyler you know we have facebook who's invested 700 google. million dollars google everyone everyone uh, so it's a, it's a good, good market to be, in. let's put it that way. Yeah, it's absolutely wild. It's, it's fun to watch. Cool. All right. Moving on to market watch. This week's market is uh, coming from a fairer climate. Uh, and of course it's no surprise that we're headed down to Florida because it is a state that has no income tax. So we're going to be looking at Tampa. Let's pull this up. Of course, as always, we are back in the Urban Land Institute's Emerging Trends in Real Estate, uh, which, again, is just, you know, I know we talk about this every week, but it is a phenomenal, phenomenal tool for looking at what, what cities are up and coming. It is considered one of the boom markets, along with Austin, Phoenix, Salt Lake City, uh, which means that they have less exposure to the industries that were affected by COVID. So Tampa actually did really well uh, this past year. Of course, it's on the western side um, of Florida there. It is number six in terms of overall real estate prospects in the country. So, you know, if we take a look at that, of course, Charlotte is barely ahead of them. Uh, and in front of them is Dallas-Fort Worth, then Nashville-Austin, and of course, number one is Raleigh-Durham. But look at that. Tampa is beating Salt Lake City. They're beating Washington, D.C. They're ahead of Boston, Long Island, ahead of Atlanta in terms of overall real estate prospects. I mean, that is pretty remarkable. Uh, I actually had lunch today with a developer friend of mine who was recently down in St. Pete, which, of course, is pretty, really, really close to Tampa. And she was talking about how she is interested in developing down in St. Pete because it has so much going for it. And look at that. Somebody from Nashville, you know, talking about going to develop in St. Pete. I mean, that's that to me says everything. Let's see here. Um, in terms of home building prospects, they're number five in the country. Uh, ahead of San Antonio, Boise, Atlanta, Denver, Na ahead of Nashville. They have a better better home building prospect than Nashville. Let's see. They are part of the Super Sun Belt, um, which, you know, of course, also Atlanta, Dallas-Fort Worth, Phoenix, San Antonio, Houston, all of those other cities are in, um, which is, you know, in terms of their population, they generate 28% of the new jobs between 2019 and 2025, which is crazy uh, for that for those cities. Um, you know, they're all the, the top 10 fastest growing cities in the U.S. Moving on to local market perspective, investor demand. It is a 3.7 out of 5, which puts it easily in the top 20 in the country. We've got local market perspective in terms of development and redevelopment opportunities. They are 3.65 out of 5. That puts them about in the top 10 in the country. As far as U.S. industrial property buy, hold, sell recommendations, they are, they're pretty high on the list with 66% hold, uh, buying. Uh, looks like 31% holding and only 3% selling. Look at that, 3% are selling. Can you imagine how difficult it is to buy industrial there right now? In multifamily, they are number two on the list in terms of buy. 67% are buying, 30% are holding, and only 2% are selling. So this is a this has got to be one of the tightest markets that we have actually covered. 
because even Raleigh Durham, which is number one on the list in terms of buying, still has nine percent uh, sales. Nine percent of groups are selling in Raleigh Durham, whereas two percent are selling in uh, in Tampa St. Pete. In terms of the U.S. office mar market for buy, hold, sell recommendations, they are uh, top top eight, give or take, with thirty one percent buying, fifty four percent holding, and fourteen percent selling. So I'd say, you know, in they're they're middle of the road. Um, they're, they're definitely not bad, but it's not, uh, it's probably not super desirable, right? Um, and they're also on the list for retail buy, hold, sell recommendations, but look at that. Only 11% are buying 46% are holding and 43% are selling. Now, again, if you look at the whole list of all of the, you know, I guess that's what top 15, top 20 cities for us retail, uh, buy, hold, sell recommendations. I mean, it, it, there's not a huge difference between number one and, and you know, the last one, number 20. Um, it just looks like retail prospects overall are a little bit different. Uh, but again, no surprise, right? I mean, retail's taken a hit and it's not, it's not really what it used to be. Uh, let's move on to this, this other article here from fool.com. Uh, this is 2021 Tampa real estate market investing forecast. So let's kind of dive into why Tampa is is one of these is such a hot market. Looks like it is consistently ranked as one of the top 10 real estate markets over the past few years, uh, which is attractive. It's a hot spot for both commercial and residential real estate investors. Looks like it was uh, it originated as a cigar centric city. I like that in the late 1800s and early 1900s which uh, helped it establish it as an important trade port and financial hub uh, for all of Florida. Uh, you know, of course, it's warm in the relatively warm in the winter. So you get a lot of snowbirds headed down there. And they have a pretty a burgeoning scene of restaurants, bars, theater, music, art and nightlife, uh, which is pretty interesting. I mean, if you've ever been to Tampa, you, you know exactly what we're talking about. It's, it's a great, it's a beautiful city. Uh, it's a lot of fun. Let's see here. So the greater Tampa Bay market encompasses three distinct cities, Tampa, St. Petersburg, and Clearwater, scattered across two counties. Uh, of course, it's on the Gulf of Mexico. Um, each city offers a variety of real estate investment opportunities, from suburban residential neighborhoods to the revitalization of historic districts or long-term residential and commercial rentals in high-density downtowns. Let's look at the state of the market here. It hasn't been as adversely affected by COVID like we were just talking about, uh, like, like cities such as New York City, San Francisco, L.A., Seattle, Chicago have. Uh, they have a smaller population, and for Florida, it's relatively affordable. Um, that's pretty cool. So looks like uh, they had some looser restrictions regarding the operation of businesses and laws relating to eviction moratoriums um, as compared to other states. So, you know, Nashville has been seeing a lot of that because of the restrictions in California and how uh, just tough it was to operate a business there and still is still tough to operate a business there. You've got a lot of companies that are moving out of the state and relocating. And so we're seeing a ton of that in Nashville. We're seeing a ton of that in Austin. No surprise that you're seeing that in Tampa as well. Looks like the low supply is pushing housing prices up. Uh, again, no surprise there. It looks like they only have a 1.1-month housing supply. Um, median housing prices have increased 14.3% over the last year. Um, so just high demand for buyers, uh, which, is, which is pretty good. 
Rental rates are rising, but vacancies are still a concern. Interesting. Rents have increased 6.6% year over year, which puts the average rent price at $1,589. What's Andy, what is the average rent price in Nashville? Is it closer to like $1,300? I think so. Yeah. Uh, I, let me get that back. Okay. Uh, looks like the vacancy in the area, though, is 7.7%, which is that's a little bit high, 1.2% higher than the national average. Um Interesting. I wonder if it's because there's so much like either that's probably either a sign of too much product being delivered or yeah, it's gotta be because it's, I mean, there's enough demand going on there. They probably just have a lot of, a lot of units being delivered. Mortgage delinquencies are also on the rise. Wow. Uh, they have a 7.7% mortgage delinquency rate, which is also 1.2% higher than the national average. Wow. I wonder what's going on there. Foreclosures are still down, uh, but those high mortgage delinquencies mean that there could be an uptick in demand balancing out the market in the near future and providing opportunities for investors in the distressed marketplace. We have a 5.2% unemployment, which is really low. That's great, uh, which is pretty stable. Median price is $271,000, which has increased 14.3% year over year. That's a big, big jump. Um, we already kind of dove into all of these numbers here. Let's see what this next article has to say. Our median rent, by the way, in Nashville is actually right at 1200 bucks for a two bedroom apartment. So cheaper wow. than I, than I even thought. Yeah, that's not bad that at all. That is median, median, not average. I saw a stat just now that said average is more like 1700. So there are some high, high rent numbers, probably in the downtown. Quality. Yeah. Pulling that up. Average be way higher. Yeah, that makes sense. All right, this uh, this next article is from Creative Loafing, Tampa Bay. The smallest house on the market in South Tampa is selling for $300,000. Interesting. <laughs> they are calling this the most symptomatic example of Tampa Bay's insanely furious real estate market. A house the size of a roomy garage is now selling for $300,000. Um, wow, it's 576 square feet. Uh, definitely a teardown. Sits on a 7,400-square-foot lot. Um, <laughs> the, it, this article is hilarious. It literally says, the, the property listing doesn't mention a single redeeming feature. <laughs> um, as you can see from the photos, two bedrooms, one bathroom, and one hell of a shed. Looks like uh, low rates and low inventory have fueled an absolutely insane market in Tampa Bay in 2020, and, and it is not slowing down. They expect housing prices to increase by another 7.5% in 2021, which will also cause property taxes to increase. Wow. Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, $300,000 for a 7,400-square-foot lot. Yeah, I just want to throw that in there, Tyler, because, you know, it, it's starting to get that there – it's like Nashville, right? The lots that we sell for teardowns. It's like everything's just being sold for teardown value where you – and and that one might even be i don't even think you can build two houses on a 7400 square foot lot probably not no no there's no way you, know, you look at the picture next to it you can probably only fit one so if you fit one house on a three hundred thousand dollars square foot lot oh my gosh like you're paying three hundred thousand dollars just for land that's great. yeah i mean you've got it yeah if you're paying three hundred thousand dollars for the land you know typically you want to build in the four to five times lot cost range which means that you've got to sell a house in the 1.2 to $1.5 million range to make that make sense. Now, if you're owner occupying it, you can make your numbers work a little bit differently. But I mean, if a builder was going to go in there and merchant build a house for sale, 
that's where you would have to be. That's that's it's crazy. Be interesting to see if they get that. All right, moving on to the future of commercial real estate. These are the articles that we feel are going to, uh, or, or just the trends that you should watch that will have an impact on the future of commercial real estate. This article is coming at you from the Commercial Observer. Uh, commercial real estate appears to embrace CBRS post-COVID. Um, it's the next big thing in wireless connectivity for office properties in particular. This is pretty interesting. It is basically talking about how uh, wireless uh, in office buildings, commercial spaces, um, and in general is going to is going to to just have a massive shift uh, move forward. So it's it's the Citizens Broadband Radio Service (CBRS), which offers increased speed and security. Um, so it's, it's probably going to become one of those amenities that could differentiate your office building from another office building and make a tenant decide to lease with you or not. Um, it is a wireless frequency band, um, fully authorized for commercial use in 2020. The building owners can now utilize to set up faster, more secure, private, high-speed wireless connections. It's effectively a shortcut to upgrade an entire office building or workspace to 5G speeds. Think about that, a shortcut to doing that. be interesting to see how they talk about how that happens. Oh, uh, let's see here. One of the nation's first commercial projects to utilize CBRS uh, effectively doubled the office building's wireless capacity. That's amazing. If you think about how much internet every company is using now, and for a, a building to go in and effectively double the amount of capacity that they could have, it's again, like I'm saying, that that could that could determine whether a tenant decides to lease with you or move on to the next guy. Um, interesting. So let's see here. CBRS is both faster and more secure and will become a huge selling point for high value tenants in financial education, tech, next generation manufacturing and film and video game production. So you think about cities like Nashville, we were just talking about tech in Nashville. You think about Chattanooga, Austin, it's going to be, you know, uh, Raleigh, Durham, it's going to be big in those cities. And, wow, uh, looks like this group connected virtual tech event last November. Yunus Shadad, an, uh, an executive director at uh, Ericsson, claimed that installing such systems could increase the value of commercial properties up to 20% due to having a private indoor network. So that means that this is another way for commercial real estate owners to actually make an income stream off of their building. So I wonder if that means that they could cut out Comcast altogether uh, or AT&T or any of these other internet providers uh, just to provide their own internet. I know that uh, some um, multifamily apartment complexes have been offering services like this uh, for a little bit. It was a little bit different. They would have kind of a third party come in and then they would control it in-house and basically distribute it to their tenants um, and make money that way. Uh, but I mean, if this is, if this is true and this is another income stream for property owners that I think 20% is, could be a conservative estimate on how much that could actually increase. I mean, if you think about being able to, I mean, we pay, I don't know, a hundred bucks a month, $150 a month, give or take for internet. And you think about being able to, I mean, across 16 tenants, let's just call it in this, in this building that I'm in right now, that's an additional $1,600 a month, which over a year so 1600 times 12 that's an additional nineteen thousand two hundred dollars in income a year let's divide that by this building will probably trade at a five and a half cap or six let's say six cap 
That's an additional $320,000 in value just on, on the building that I'm in right now. I mean, that's, that's kind of a no-brainer. I mean, I, I don't know why you wouldn't do that. That's one of the easiest ways to possibly increase your value. So, I mean, really, the, effectively, the, the, depending on how much of a return you have to have on your money, that means you could possibly spend up to $100,000 or more on, on just retrofitting this building for that to make it make sense. Obviously, you wouldn't want to do that. It sounds very expensive, but just saying kind of how, how investors really think about that. Let's see here. General consensus is that once COVID ends and people get back into buildings, the growth engine will be offices for CBRS. Um, let's see. The FCC decided to create a mechanism that allowed military ships and satellites to have priority over the band. Um, so it allows others uh, private access to the rest of the spectrum, um, allowing them to create their own high-speed LTE networks at 5G speed. I mean, that's, that's some fast internet if you can do that all in-house. So it's different from Wi-Fi, apparently. Um, it's much more secure. Uh, they can do building critical information over those lines, uh, which you apparently cannot do over Wi-Fi. Um, it will be the foundation that allows tenants and visitors' smartphones to work on the same network. Well, that's always nice. I mean, everybody's always had a different, uh, different Wi-Fi access for guests because of how much usage that can be. Um, it'll always slow down your internet. Let's see. The beauty of the spectrum is that it can be segmented. It goes on and on with potential use cases. Looks like it's the backbone for smart building applications. I mean, of course, as buildings move towards a smarter and smarter platform where they have all of this artificial intelligence that is, is determining you know, how much HVAC you're getting, of course, the, the building itself is going to start using Internet more. You've got tenants that are using Internet more. When you think about this, like we're live streaming now, how many tenants are going to start doing live streaming as a part of their marketing? I mean, that, that takes up bandwidth. ESG, which is environmental, social, and corporate governance uh, monitoring, such as tracking emissions, air quality, and other sustainability feature, features of a building, will also be a future application for CBRS. Uh, looks like it could integrate um, with uh, some smart building systems and allow tenants to track occupancy data, indoor air quality, lobby occupancy, elevator wait times. That's interesting. So, you know, in, uh, in Nashville, there's not a huge um, issue with elevator wait times, right? But if you're in a tower in New York City in rush hour, um, you might be waiting in the lobby for a little bit. So you could even, you know, have your employees come in at, you know, a different time because now you've monitored how long the wait time is and, Hey, 9.45 a.m. is actually the perfect time to be coming in. So, you know, you just, just make things more efficient. Uh, okay, so it's saying here it's not perfect. Costs slightly less to install than traditional Wi-Fi systems. That's good to see. Uh, setting up such a system means installing a fiber trunk and a new system of sensors. Annual operating costs are roughly double that of traditional Wi-Fi systems. Um, so it looks like uh, if you factor in installation and operation for five years for a 250,000 square foot building and CBRS costs between 63 cents and 78 cents a square foot uh, versus 53 cents a foot for Wi-Fi. Um, I mean, that's not bad, right? I mean, that's, that's just a little bit more. Um, oh, not every device works with CBRS. A new generation of iPhones and other smartphones work, as do certain laptops from HP and Dell. Um, but I would imagine, you know, technology is going to tackle catch up with that in the next year or so. Interesting. So they, they think it could be a game changer. I mean, that's big, Andy. I mean, you know, the, the ability for 
not only landlords to be able to uh, monetize this program, but to also be able to market it to tenants as a more secure, faster form of internet. I mean, why wouldn't anybody want that? Absolutely, Tyler. And we're looking to do that too, albeit with different technology in our new old tower building in Chattanooga. We were looking to kind of be, because we have inherited a tech data center that was previously used by Hamilton County government as their data IT storage center. So we have a bunch of infrastructure that we can actually use to be providing actually internet service for all of the tenants and all of the guests in our property, right? So with that ability to monetize that, that's going to be something that adds a lot of value to our building, right? So this is going to be the same sort of thing potentially with other buildings with this CBRS system. And actually, I just sent an email to our tech guys to see if we should look into this as well. Because <laughs> maybe we should look into this as well. Yeah, might be worth looking at. That's pretty interesting. All right, moving on. This is an article from Marketplace.org. Commercial landlords look to grocery stores to fill retail vacancies. This is no surprise, right? Over the last few years, this has been uh, pretty big in retail. Is you know people are wanting the uh, grocery anchored shopping centers, and COVID has just proven that they are very COVID proof, right? They are resilient. Um, so, grocery business has been one of the few bright spots in retail during the pandemic. Of course. Um, a lot of uh, a lot of these grocers actually have pretty big expansion plans. Looks like uh, more than 2,500 new grocery stores of 5,000 square feet or bigger have opened up in the last five years. Um, of course, let's see, and they've been filling the the gap um, created by the downturn uh, in in-person shopping. So you know you're losing tenants like Toys R Us, Office Depot, Bed Bath and Beyond, but they're getting filled with Grocers. Uh, you know, it, it, the retail sector is pretty interesting, right? Because if you're willing to get creative and figure out how to work with those big box um, units, you know, you can make something happen with it. I mean, it doesn't, it's not scary to me at all. Right? You just have to know what you're buying and getting into. Uh, either you're going to have to break those tenants up or those spaces up uh, to accommodate smaller tenants, or you can go back and find a grocery or find a church or find a gym, you know, something like that that is still rocking and rolling. Um, looks like they're pretty recession-proof. Uh, groceries sign long-term leases, sometimes up to 20 years, and they do bring a pretty significant amount of foot traffic. Uh, I mean, think about it. A lot of people shop weekly, if not daily, or every other day. So, of course, if you're a another retailer and you want to be in a good area uh, and you need the visibility – I mean, being next to a grocery store is ideal because people will come and they will see you once a week, twice a week, three times a week. It just depends on how much people are really shopping in that area. Um, looks like 20 years ago, grocery stores averaged around 40 to 50,000 square feet. Uh, now they're about half that, 20 to 30,000 square feet, and they're still shrinking, which to me makes a lot of sense. I mean, you look at, uh, you look at this, we're almost having a reverse trend uh, from this, this shift to big box, you know, the Walmarts of the world to, oh, realizing like, wow, that had a massively negative impact on, on local and small businesses. Let's shift back. So you look in Nashville, uh, we have a local grocery store called Turnip Truck, right? And they, they want to be, um, they aim to be the local grocery store of Nashville. And they're, they're definitely on the smaller end, right? I mean, I would say they're probably less than maybe 20,000 feet or less. 
And people love that because they go out and they source from local farmers and, and local producers. And that uh, that just puts money right back into this economy. Um, so, it, yeah, I, I think that there's a lot of a lot of that. And also, as people move into these tighter, denser, more urban neighborhoods, they're going to need smaller grocery stores. Right. Because if you can walk to a grocery store or you know take public transit, uh, it just it makes a lot more sense. Let's see. It looks like it takes about 15,000 residents to support one grocery store. Um, wow. In North Carolina, they have so many stores that they ended up with about half that ratio, 7,500 residents per supermarket. Um, interesting. So that caused grocery stores to compete by dropping prices because they had too many. Um, and that bubble burst. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So I think, uh, you know, keep an eye on uh, grocery anchored shopping centers. Um, those have been trading at, at very low cap rates for a long time now. It's, it's honestly very difficult to find them uh, because they, they do so well in retail that it's tough to, you know, I mean, one, to justify the cost now of owning them, uh, but two, to really get in there and, uh, and it's, it's, they'll always do well, right? So they're, they're, they're as about as stable as a shopping center will get. All right, moving on to marketwatch.com. No vacancy? Here's one fix for the affordable housing shortage. Converting empty hotels and office buildings into residential developments could help solve the affordable housing shortage, but do the numbers work? When the pandemic first hit, everybody started talking about, you know, hotels are struggling, right? So Let's, let's see if we can convert them into multifamily. Let's convert them into apartment units. Let's convert them into condos. And it's really easy to say that, right? Because, hey, they're residential. You're, you're staying in them overnight, whatever. But it's a little more nuanced than just saying, hey, you know, change, change the name uh, and turn it into, into an apartment building. So let's see, uh, let's see what they're diving into in here. Uh, we should convert vacant commercial space to supportive and affordable housing, and we should do it now, said New York Governor Andrew Cuomo. Uh, retrofitting real estate for a new purpose is not a new concept, but the strains of the pandemic bring new light to the concept. So we're actually bought, we bought a building in Chattanooga, and we're doing just this, right? I mean, it talks we're retrofitting an office building into a multifamily apartment complex. We'll have six floors of micro apartment units. And, uh, you know, it's, it is, it is expensive. We just got our, we got our quotes back. We've finalized our plans. We're starting to look at how much it's actually going to cost to do it. And it's not cheap. Um, but you know, if the, if the deal makes sense, the deal makes sense. And I think, I think, uh, I mean, office conversions to, to, uh, to apartments might actually make more sense than hotels, but that's just me. It looks like hotels are one affordable solution. Um, this group bought a 400-room former Days Inn complex in Branson, Missouri, for conversion into studio and one-bedroom apartments. Uh, looks like they've completed a couple of the buildings. It's called Plato's Cave. Um, it's approaching 50% occupancy in its completed portion. So it looks like they got two of the six buildings done. Rents range from $495 for a studio apartment to $625 for a one-bedroom unit. That's pretty affordable. Right. I mean, if you're looking for a one bedroom unit, $625. I mean, of course, this is Branson, Missouri. It's not Nashville, Tennessee, but that's really affordable. 
Looks like there was another one in Ramada Inn in northern Alabama uh, that is being planned to be converted to 121-bedroom housing units as a joint venture with uh, Drever Atelier Partners. Um, how did it just jump? There we go. Targeting late summer 2021 for the first phase open with rents below $600 a month. We've actually got a project that we're managing. So I own a commercial property management company um, here in Nashville that did just this. It took a – the developers took a – um, an old uh, motel and completely gutted it, fully renovated it. It's beautiful property and turn it into micro apartment units. So all in the rents are $895 a month. That includes your Wi-Fi. That includes your utilities. I mean, to be able to live five minutes outside of downtown Nashville for under a thousand dollars a month without having to have roommates is pretty affordable. I mean, of course we're big on micro units. I think that this kind of lends itself to the whole micro unit thesis of, Let's, let's just make smaller units because inherently, even though they're at market rates, they are inherently more affordable. Looks like Realty Mogul has seen five transactions of this type submitted to its platform. Interesting. Um, Realty Mogul is a, a crowdfunding marketplace. So it looks like there are developers that are going in and pitching this as a crowdfunding possibility. Uh, they're being billed mostly as affordable multifamily units and renovated office space and other mixed uses. Um, looks like groups are actively looking for hospitality to multifamily conversion. Um, they're going to be, in general, more affordable than other multifamily in the submarket because the four plates are smaller. Exactly what I was just saying. I mean, they, the, they are small. And, like, we're looking at some stuff in Chattanooga. And we're looking at $3 a square foot for rents, you know, 3 to $4 a foot. Well, if you're at 300 square feet and you're at $3 a foot, it's only $900 a month. I mean, that's incredibly affordable, but that's an insanely high price per square foot. I mean, I think the the median price in Nashville is probably barely, you know, maybe not even a dollar and a half a foot. So that's a, that's a pretty significant jump. So, I mean, that's that's good for both parties, right? I mean, the, the end user gets something that's affordable on a monthly basis, and the landlord gets a better price per square foot. It's conceivable that a hotel could be purchased for around $40,000 a unit and the same amount put into refurbishments, so another $40,000 a unit. So you're all in at $80,000 a unit, and then you could sell it for $120,000 a unit. I mean, that sounds about right for multifamily. If you can find any multifamily for $120,000 a unit that has been retrofitted, it's pretty damn good. Now, again, granted, these are small units. I think, I think the average cost of building in Nashville right now on multifamily units is about $180,000. Um, one factor making these conversions so affordable is the overlap between hotel and apartment design, plumbing and unit layouts often remain untouched. So generally a kitchen update and overall refresh are all that's needed. Of course, you need to have a better kitchen. That's one thing that lenders, that's like the first question that a lender will ask. If you talk about doing micro apartment units, will it have a kitchen? Which is funny because I guess it just helps make it feel like it's not really an, a, a multi or I'm sorry, a hotel unit anymore. Um, but I mean, I never use my kitchen. So to me, that doesn't matter. I think it's almost a waste of space for some users. Let's see here. Diving further in. In June of 2020, the lodging sector's delinquency rate hit a record high of 24.3% before falling back to 19.43%. That's really, really high. Uh, looks like in Houston and Chicago, over half of the outstanding balance for hotels was delinquent as of November. I mean, of course, right? I mean, it's COVID. I mean, nobody was traveling. 
and hotels are going to do well if tra- people are traveling and they just they weren't so last year was pretty rough for hotels but it's coming roaring back i mean if you're if you're looking at hotels in nashville it is insane i mean the the tourism industry is is already back here i mean we're we're it's it's like we're back before the pandemic again um, converting an office building into apartments is, in most cases, more complex than a hospitality to apartments conversion. Of course, I mean we don't need to dive too far into that, but I mean, of, of course, it's going to be right because you don't have the efficiencies of of, of the plumbing being in the right place and um, the layout being perfectly right. But I mean, it could be worth it, you know, depending on on um, the acquisition price. I mean, again, we're doing that in Chattanooga, and it was absolutely worth it. Um, so we're and we're pretty excited to be doing that. We we originally. We originally were going to uh, build out all office space. We were just going to renovate it and keep it that way. And then I started thinking, well, what if we did some multifamily? So we looked at adding two floors of multifamily. And when Andy was talking to lenders, they kept saying, well, look at more multifamily. How does it look with more multifamily? And so now we've ended up with six floors of, of uh, you know, office to apartment conversion. Andy, anything else you want to uh, say on that? No, I think, I mean, this is going to be, continue to rise obviously we'll see more projects happen like this it's funny tyler that the person they actually cite here republic and richard rubin i actually interviewed him last last year trying to pick his brain about this stuff so that that, these guys are are doing some cool cool things turning these hotels into apartments and if you can find the right deal there are a lot of people looking to buy them too yep i think you're absolutely right Andy, is this next article, so this is Retail REITs, Kimco, merging. This is PE Deal Dive, right? Yes. All right. Let's get into private equity deal dive. Obviously, uh, Andy put these articles together, and I should have paid a little more attention before we got started, but here we are. Okay, so Retail REITs, Kimco, and Weingarten merging in a $12 billion deal. This is from Fool.com. So Kimco Realty, which is publicly traded under uh, the New York Stock Exchange, has agreed to acquire uh, the another retail REIT, uh, which is a real estate investment trust, Wine Garden Realty Investors, also public, you know, of course, publicly traded, in a cash and stock deal. The transaction will create a a sector leading retail REIT with a twelve billion dollar market cap and more than twenty billion dollar enterprise value. The increased scale will reduce costs and improve the combined company's balance sheet while putting it in a stronger position to weather the upheaval in the retail sector from the accelerating shift to e-commerce. This is a big deal. I mean, of course, this is a uh, there are some pretty obvious reasons as to why, uh, you know, these private equity deals are starting to happen. Um, you're, you're starting to see this more and more right now because all of these groups are sitting on massive piles of cash. Because they thought, hey, you know, the world is ending. There's going to be a whole lot of properties that hit the market. And guess what? That never happened. So there are never any buying opportunities. So uh, they've got to figure out some way to put that cash to use and get a return on it. Looks like Kimco agreed to acquire Weingarten for 1.408 shares of its stock and $2.89 per share in cash or $30.32 per share overall. Uh, interesting. So that represents an 11% premium to Wine Garden's closing price, valuing the REIT's equity at $3.5 billion and $5.3 billion in enterprise value. So uh, the, the two combining will create a premier open-air shopping center and mixed-use real estate company. 
Uh, looks like Wine Garden has about 159 primarily grocery anchor shopping centers. Imagine that. That's what we were just talking about. With 30 million square feet of gross leasable space. So that's a pretty good sized portfolio. And of course, they're in the Sunbelt region. Uh, as well as in the West Coast. So, you know, everybody's wanting to get in the Sunbelt region. This just makes a lot of sense for Kimco to go ahead and acquire a company that has another substantial presence uh, in the Sunbelt. Looks like 82% of its annual base rent comes from grocery acre shopping centers with 81% of its locations in Sunbelt markets. That's about as secure of a portfolio as you could possibly buy, in, in my opinion. I mean, grocery, you know, that high of an exposure to grocery anchor shopping centers and in the Sun Belt, which is rapidly growing. Um, I mean, that's that's a good buy. Looks like it will increase Kimco's portfolio to about 559 properties with 100 million square feet of gross leasable space. So basically, they just increased their uh, their space by or their gross leasable by about 50 percent uh, with this acquisition. Let's see. Um, their exposure to grocery anchored centers will improve from 78% to 79%, um, while the REIT will boost its presence in the Sunbelt region as part uh, as its ABR from those markets will rise from 42% to 53%. That's pretty significant. So they didn't have as nearly as big of a presence um, in the Sunbelt region. Uh, looks like uh, it'll. You know they expect it should position the company uh, to better compete against the accelerating shift towards e-commerce. Of course. You know, you've got some grocery delivery companies and stuff like that, but people are still very accustomed to going to groceries and shopping still, um, which, again, is why grocery anchored centers are still doing so well. Uh, looks like it will also enable Kimco to capture $31 million to $34 million of annual cash expense savings while improving, uh, while improving its leverage ratio and enhancing its growth profile. So, you know, even though they're coming out of pocket, for this acquisition, it's going to end up saving them quite a, uh, a significant amount. Uh, so this will be a pretty good merger for them, or acquisition, rather. Um, it looks like they are expecting this to drive the acceleration of M&A in the REIT sector. Uh, we've seen several go private transactions and proposals this year. We talked about one a couple weeks ago. Uh, who was that? Brookdale uh, was buying, buying their uh, stock back. Um, again, it's because they're sitting on so much cash, and they might as well take that this opportunity to do that. So they're saying to go ahead and expect to see a steady string of mergers and acquisitions announcements this year. I would imagine there's already a ton of the works. Everybody's, you know, I mean, th those those are big deals. They take forever um, to to really negotiate. Andy, anything you want to add to that? The last thing, Tyler, to add is that with the effects of COVID starting to be a little bit in the rear view mirror for a lot of these companies, that a lot of the reason these mergers and acquisitions are coming up too is not only because they have a lot of cash, more importantly, is that they're coming to a consensus on asset values. People are able to actually price what they think things are worth now. And they're not having to apply a ridiculous discount rate into the properties because they don't know what's going on. Everyone can see the light at the end of the tunnel, so you can actually plan for the future when getting these deals done, right? And that's the most important things for a real estate investor. I have to manage my risk, and you know, the more risky a property is, the less I can pay for it. Well, a seller doesn't want to do a deal if I'm not going to pay very much. So now that people are starting to be able to actually assess what the level of risk is, deals are going to start flowing again. So the, the hiatus on the lack of deals, I think, 
is going to start picking up pretty strongly here in the next few months. Yep, makes sense to me. All right, this is another article from Fool.com. Will 2021 be the year REIT M&As pick up speed? Of course it will be. Again, kind of diving further back into what we were just talking about. Uh, there are There is so much cash on the sidelines, um, and these groups are just looking at they got, they got to spend it, right? I mean, you're not making any money. In fact, you're probably losing money by keeping it in cash uh, based on inflation rates. So they've got to put it out there and get it to work because um, it's worth more. So it looks like uh, Goodwin, which is a global corporate law firm, recently put out a report analyzing the 32 new REIT M&A transactions announced from January 2019 to March of 2021. 87% of them were public-to-public -public deals, with the rest go private transactions pretty interesting. Uh, they're, they're saying some notable deals included Simon Property Group's $3.4 billion acquisition of Mall Reap Taubman Centers last year uh, and Prologis' $13 billion purchase of fellow industry Liberty Property Trust in 2019. Looks like we are starting to see an increase in go private transactions though. Uh, Blackstone and Starwood Capital are teaming up to take Hospitality REIT Extended Stay America Private in an all-cash deal uh, valuing it at $6 billion. We covered that one uh, probably a month ago, give or take, because extended stay hotels are crushing it. They did so well throughout the pandemic. And in fact, I think they, they only saw a couple percentage point drop um, in their revenue, uh, depending on, on the group, because guess what? People needed to stay somewhere. So uh, here it is. Brookfield Asset Management also agreed to privatize its publicly traded real estate affiliates. Brookfield, uh, yeah, Brookfield, not Brookdale. Brookfield, my apologies. Uh, Brookfield Property Partners and Brookfield Property REIT. Uh, Brookfield will pay $6.5 billion in cash. Brookfield stock and preferred units to acquire the rest of the property they don't already own. It's pretty interesting. One of the driving factors behind these go private transactions is the belief among institutional investors that the public market isn't fully valuing these REITs. So that's, I mean, that's Warren Buffett 101. If you look at a company and you feel like it is not being valued properly, that is a good buy. And that's exactly what these companies are doing. They believe in the long-term value of Columbia's high quality office holdings. This is coming from uh, an investor group trying to buy Columbia, uh, which is Columbia Property Trust. Uh, they feel stockholders are not likely to realize the value of the company's assets in the foreseeable future if the company remains on its current course in the public market. Um, they're also seeking scale. I mean, yeah, it gives them scalability, right? The bigger you get, the easier it gets, the cheaper your money is, uh, the cheaper your debt is. I mean, it's just, it makes it the, the more secure your transactions are. So, of course, the bigger you get, the easier it is for you to just go about doing you know, development or investments or acquisitions, whatever it is. Um, yeah, so they're saying overall, you know, there's pent-up demand. Uh, there's an ability to reach a consensus on valuation. So it looks like the buyers and sellers are actually getting close to what the pricing should be. Um, and there's first mover advantages. Um, you know, these M&A transactions immediately following a downturn have yielded the best return. So if you get in there and you buy up everybody fast, it get a get a pretty good pretty good return on your money. So, yeah, I, I expect we'll see a lot of M&A um, going on in, in the next few years. Andy, anything else you want to add to that? I know we, pre I mean, we pretty much covered that. That's it, Tyler. Let's move on to the next sector. Awesome. So we're going into PropTech. 
PropTech is fun. There is so much going on in the world of real estate right now with all of the technology that is happening. And this one is, is uh, this one uh, hits close to home because I actually use Matterport. Uh, when the pandemic first hit, we started talking about, you know, what are some other ways that we can, we can show off our spaces? And Matterport was the first one. It is incredibly easy for, uh, I mean, so if you're not familiar with Matterport, first off, it is a basically a 3D camera, um, or, or is what they offer, 3D spatial mapping tools. And that allows me to go in and create a 3D tour of any of my office spaces or available retail spaces, or, you know, for example, in, in Chattanooga, we went and shot some of that so that I could show potential cafes and coffee shops what the ground floor space would look like. And anybody can, can do that, right? Like we can look at the data and I've seen people from Chicago taking tours and California taking tours, which is pretty neat, especially in a time where, um, you know, you don't even know if you can get out and, and tour somebody in person. So we started shooting 3D tours of all of our spaces about a year ago. Um, it looks like uh, Matterport has agreed to go public, um, which is pretty cool. I mean, good, good for them. The company's been growing rapidly over the last few years. It's been interesting to see how their technology has advanced uh, as well. Because, I mean, when they first started, their cameras were like this big. I mean, they were massive. You know, and they were, they were so expensive that only professional uh, photographers had them. And now, you know, you can order one for three or $400 off of Amazon, and it's smaller than your iPhone. And it, it's so easy to use. So, so easy to use. Uh, let's see here. They expect to close the deal later this year, and the combined entity will take on the Matterport name because uh, it looks like they're going through uh, a SPAC, uh, Special Purpose Acquisition Company, which we talked about earlier has been, uh, or on an earlier episode, has been very popular over the last year because <laughs> basically your financials don't matter uh, when they take you public. So, you know, we, we kind of joked about that. I, I think SPACs are very interesting. I don't know that I would – Invest in one, but whatever. Um, let's see. Matterport is fast growing, and whether or not a stock can generate big returns over the next five years uh, will determine you know how how the going public works. Um, let's see. I mean, they're also talking about first movers advantage in a disruptive space. I mean, they've been doing these 360 cameras for years. Like I said, um, I mean, it's it's very similar to like taking. Uh, I mean, the cool thing is when you do these tours, it looks like uh, basically a Google Maps view of the inside of your building. So if you've never seen one, that's a pretty good way of relating to it. It's really cool. So I can actually look all the way around. I can see the floor. I can see the ceiling. And it actually feels like you're in it. Now, one of the big things that they've been talking about over the next five years is Matterport's integration into virtual reality, which will make it even easier to tour through these spaces. And imagine just putting on a headset and basically walking around in a space, just looking around. I mean, the, the, the developers and investors that use that type of product to market their space will have a significant advantage over those that don't, right? Um, let's see here. They have an iOS app, streamline the process by enabling iPhone and iPad users to scan physical spaces such as homes and office buildings and easily create 3D digital dollhouse models. It's pretty cool. I mean, if you're, if you're, on, uh, if you're watching on YouTube, you can see that this is the space. I mean, you, they, they just go like every three to five feet and basically take a 3D photo and then it scans and puts it all together. Pretty impressive technology. Uh, let's see. They've already been used. So Matterport software has already been used to scan millions of buildings in over 150 countries. Imagine the data that they have. 
Its number of customers rose from 14,000 in 2018 to 40,000 in 2019, then soared to over 250,000 last year, including more than 13% of the Fortune 1000. And of course it did. I mean, look, if we're, you know, you're, you've got your average real estate broker can now easily shoot 30 tours. Why wouldn't they? I mean, again, it cost me like 400 bucks and it takes 15 minutes to go through and shoot this. Um, of course, they've also got an online subscription. So I think, you know, we, you, you pay for a membership. So we can do, we can put 25 spaces up for like, I don't know, 20 bucks a month or 50 bucks a month, wherever it is. So they get that recurring income as well. So they're selling hardware and SaaS. Uh, you know, software as a service, which is a great combination. So let's see, where will Matterport be in five years? Uh, they will debut with a pro forma enterprise value of $2.3 billion, which would value it at about 27 times last year's sales. I, this is why I don't invest in tech. I don't understand how a company can be worth 27 times its sales. Um, Do you know how much Tesla's valuation is worth? Uh, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. <laughs> it, I know it's ridiculous. Um, yeah, that, you know, Andy loves to talk about this, but it's like, yeah, just call yourself a technology company. We can go raise a ridiculous amount of money. It doesn't even matter, which is true, right? Like, I mean, Matterport is, I guess they're a good hybrid of both. Let's see. Number of managed spaces rose from 1.4 million in 2018 to 4.4 million in 2020. Uh, looks like they've got about 4 billion buildings with 20 billion spaces worldwide, and they represent a total addressable market of more than $240 billion. At an average monthly rate of a dollar per space per month, Matterport could generate billions of dollars in annual revenue by capturing just a sliver of the market, uh, which, yeah, is true. I mean, look, they are the, the dominant force in the market. I mean, I, I couldn't tell you one other 3d tour company and i'm by no means um you know biased to matterport looks like they offered a an impressive projection for 747 million dollars of annual revenue by 2025 which would represent a whopping compound annual growth rate of 59 percent between 2019 and 2025 i mean i guess that is how they kind of justify that 27 times earnings right they, they're, they're showing such outstanding growth that they think that it'll actually end up being less than 27 years before <laughs> make your money back. Um, let's see. They believe that their gross margin can expand from 48% to 73% in that same time. That's crazy. But they do have a very high retention. Uh, looks like 112% in the fourth quarter of 2020. Yeah, I mean, customers are loyal to its program. I don't know anybody else that's that's really doing this. Let's see what the challenges are. Investors should be aware of the long-term threats. Matterport's service is pricier and more complicated than those of other platforms, such as Zillow's 3D Home Tour and Cupix 3D Tour. Interesting. Um, I didn't even know that Zillow offered a 3D Home Tour. But I'm not in residential, so maybe that's why. Could face even more competition over the next five years as 3D sensing cameras and LiDAR scanners become standard in most phones. Interesting. Um, its cloud service, which requires clients to host their tours on its servers, could also be disrupted by competitors if they offer free hosting. Yeah, that's for sure. So is Matterport worth buying? Well, uh, the growth rates are impressive. The subscriptions are sticky. Demand for services will likely rise, um, especially with you know virtual reality or augmented reality. But it looks like the stocks will debut with a frothy price-to-sales ratio, and it could be bludgeoned by high bond yields as the rotation from growth to value continues. 
Yeah, I mean, basically this this article was saying that Matterport might be worth nibbling on, but it could be uh, there's some there's some risk there. I and I agree. Um, so this is this is their website. I mean, you can kind of see how. Um, and here's some of the products that they offer. It's really easy to go in and shoot. You can get measurements. Um, you can tag all these different things. You can label things. I mean, it's it's a lot of fun um, to actually put these tours together, and it's super easy. Like I'm not a super sophisticated tech guy, even though I'm a, I'm a millennial. But it, you know, they just make it so easy. I'll X out of this. So, yep, you choose a camera. Um, you sign up for an account. You download the app. I mean, I've got it on my iPhone. It's super easy to shoot. See, this is the camera they started out with. It was huge. And now this is smaller than an iPhone. I mean, you can see, well, that's probably not the scale. But this is actually smaller than an iPhone. Uh, that's the camera that I've got if, uh, if you're looking at it. So, it's, I mean, they're just super easy to use. But, anyway, moving on to reading REITs. We've got another deep dive into a REIT article uh, for you guys today. It seems like it seems like REIT articles, whoever decided to just write articles on REITs, uh, decided that they would write the longest articles you have ever seen, ever seen on REITs, which I guess makes it pretty easy for us when we're going through and sharing these articles with you guys because we don't have to pull up too many. But here we go. SeekingAlpha.com, healthcare REITs, vaccines avert dark decade. So, Healthcare REITs, are partic- which you know they're really, really talking about senior housing and long-term care facilities, have been revived by the early vaccination success. They were crushed by COVID. I mean, just absolutely crushed. Because you think about the the uh, I mean the transmission rate of the disease in these types of facilities. I mean, it was just they had the highest mortality rates, which you know, of course. Because you've got a bunch of older people with with potentially compromised immune systems in one location, and a lot of these companies didn't have very good means by which to to prevent the spread, right? Um, it looks like your senior living facilities were ground zero of the pandemic as the illness has devastated the world's elderly populations. Thirty four percent of all COVID deaths were among nursing home residents. It's crazy. Um, let's see here. Tommy's actually jumping into the live chat with a question here. T fun question. What is your time spent on operations, maintaining assets versus financials, spending and raising money? <laughs> um, that's, that's a good question. I like spending money. That's, that's very easy. Um, but, uh, I mean, I would say, well, I've got, it, it's kind of tough to answer that, right? Cause I've got a team built around me. So I wouldn't say that, um, it's even close to 50 50 because there's a lot of other stuff that I'm doing throughout the, throughout the day, like acquisitions, right? I, I spent a lot of time networking um, to find the next deal. That's probably the majority of what I really do when it's not COVID. Um, I spent a pretty significant time, amount of time focused on acquisitions and going through the planning process. Um, as far as operations go, maintaining the assets, we're very involved in that because I have a commercial property management company and a brokerage, right? So we've, we've got that ongoing side of it. Andy really helps us with the asset management. That's, that's I mean, that's what he does. Um, so, you know, and then the financial side, if I'm spending and raising money, I, I would say, you know, in terms of operations, probably 
less than 20% of my time is really dedicated to that. And it's probably much less than that because really what it is is it's like, you know, weekly team meetings uh, where we're just going over everything. And I've got, I've got a team that helps me with everything. As far as raising money, that is a pretty significant amount of my time. And we're about to go through a capital raise. And we've got another property that we're buying in June. And so I'm going to be spending, I mean, that's like my focus for the next 60 days. Um, is making sure that we can put put that capital together. So, yeah. So that that's uh, that's probably pretty much where we are. I mean, I, it it depends. I mean, fortunately, I'm not having to raise money full time. But really, as a commercial real estate investor, you are always raising money. I mean, everybody that you meet um, could potentially be an investor. Um, he's saying, I feel you on always improving the network. You got to. I always trying to meet as many people as I possibly can because. The more people that know me, the more people that know that I invest in real estate, the more people that will be interested in investing with me on the next project. And uh, so that really helps. It also helps finding the deals, right? I mean, that's the biggest thing that like the biggest thing that I hear from other investors is that um, there's no deal flow. Like it's impossible to find good deals right now. And I'm like, man, we have the opposite problem. Like we keep, I mean, Andy and I went and looked at another deal today. We're talking about, you know, two other deals. It's, it's like, super easy for us to find the deals. I mean, we have no problem with that because of the because of basically the foundation that I've laid by starting off as a commercial real estate broker. Um, you know, the, the issue that we have is always raising the capital, which is which is, you know, it's the most frustrating part of the deal for us, because I like the creative side of it and getting in and building something. Um, the capital raising side of it actually feels like work to me. Right. So, you know, I, I feel like I don't have to work ever until it comes to a capital raise. Uh, I'm sure Andy could have some comments on that as well. Yeah, <laughs> talking about spending and raising money. Uh, we're always trying to, it's always more fun, as Tyler said, to spend money and not as fun when you're me trying to get us to meet the budget and not spend yeah. the money. So <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that's the fun part. Yeah, there's a, there's a very fine balance, right? Because we got to make sure the deals work. Um, but it's a lot easier to pull the trigger on spending money than it is to go raise it. Okay, let's see. The big three senior housing focused REITs have led the rebound this year. Uh, looks like the Well Tower reported that cases have plunged 99% since the peak. That's a pretty significant drop. That's great. It's great to hear. Um, risks remain, long term fundamentals remain more compelling than other troubled property sectors. That's pretty good to hear. So diving into the rankings, healthcare REITs have been ground zero over the coronavirus pandemic as the illness has been especially devastating to the world's elderly population. Yep, we pretty much covered that already. Uh, looks like Hoya Capital Healthcare REIT Index uh, tracks all 18 healthcare REITs, which accounts for roughly $145 billion in market value. Um, let's see here. The biggest takeaway from this first chart, Tyler, is yep. that the biggest companies in the healthcare REIT space are senior housing companies. And as we said before, the reason why they got wrecked was because 34% of COVID deaths were among nursing home residents, despite them accounting for less than 1% of the U.S. population. So just, I mean, remember those reports from New York and New Jersey in the early pandemic, it was literally just all of them just getting wiped out. So yeah. we're obviously very fortunate to have the majority 
of uh, you know the elderly population now vaccinated. So that's why, obviously, they're doing a really well. And if you want to actually zoom to not that chart, but the next one over um, the oops, you fell all the way. To the yeah, bottom. this for whatever reason on this uh, website, whenever I click on the images, it makes it uh, it sends me all the way to the bottom of the page. The next one after this, where it says Asian boomers, this is kind of the big reason why, you know, these healthcare REITs might actually be a great opportunity and not just healthcare REITs, but the senior housing opportunity in general, there's going to be a lot of baby boomers getting older who are going to need assisted care facilities. That's just, it's going to happen. And you know, as these as people tend to live longer, right, with advances in healthcare and baby boomers also, you know, they have the majority of the wealth in this country, so they have, you know, money to keep them alive. <laughs> they they're going to they're gonna do they're gonna live longer and need more resources and need more people to take care of them. So assisted care, long term living facilities and senior housing are going to be big, big factors here over the next twenty years. That makes sense. Interesting. And this chart here is interesting too, Tyler, where where you see senior housing REITs, look at their NOI near the bottom. Minus negative thirty two percent. Yeah. As opposed to Yeah, it looks like the the best performing REIT in fourth quarter of twenty twenty was five percent. That's rough. Well, which is 5% year-over-year cash-on-cash, which is not bad for Alexandria. No, it's it's not bad. Compared to everybody else, that's the NOI, not the valuation. So, actually, they were doing well. Yeah, that's actually really good. Because compared – this is the topic I covered last week about healthcare lab spaces being one of the top sectors to look at. There you go. Their NOI actually increased 5%. One of the only sectors in the healthcare industry that actually went up. Yeah, look at that diversified healthcare down negative thirty two percent. That's crazy. I mean, their their profits are thirty two percent less year over year, and and that's the, that's the difference between the two. I mean, look at that. Alexandria is in the lab space, uh, which you know probably was focused on creating the vaccine, so they were very active. And then diversified healthcare was in senior housing, so of course you know that that makes sense. I mean, if you look at the the top four um, performing right here, it's lab space, medical office building, medical office building, medical office building. Um, and then it looks like all of the senior housing rates were negative uh, in, in the negative percentage points year over year for their NOI. Um, let's see here. So the rest of this, you know, kind of touches on the stuff we already mentioned, but I think the last, the most important article the, is the, actually the last chart, the last chart on this page kind of just speaks to which of these sectors in healthcare real estate is going to be, the one actually up from this, is going to be doing well over the long term, right, where you have Despite the difficulty in senior housing over the last few over the last year, they actually think that senior housing is going to be one of the most successful into the future. So it might be a great opportunity now to buy into these uh, senior housing REITs because near-term demand high, long-term demand very.
very high. Of course, their supply growth is high, but you know, it's earlier up in the article, and we don't need to go all the way into the details. Actually, supply growth has been declining over the past few years because it's getting harder and harder to put these, as we know, deals together because of construction costs. So a mitigating factor against that is that, you know, with supply demand, we always talk about supply and demand. If there's less supply, then that means the people who have these buildings already built are going to have higher values, right? So that's probably really good for the demand for these properties and the values for these properties long-term. So senior housing and nursing facilities are actually going to be probably the most the the most uh, profitable sectors in the long run. It's interesting to me to see that hospital demand in the near term is low. Demand long term is average. I wonder what that I mean, of course, this this chart is relative to other healthcare REIT fundamentals. Be interesting to see what that uh, that outlook is compared to other um, other types of REITs, office REITs, retail REITs, you know, storage, et cetera, um, just as, as overall demand. But yeah, so there you go for, for healthcare REITs. I mean, it, it seems like, um, you know, long-term senior housing is going to be a pretty good buy um, if you're interested in that, in that sector. So definitely take a look into that. Moving on to this week's wild card, Andy, what do you have for us this week? We got something pretty exciting for you guys this week on this week's wild card. Thank you guys so much for sticking around to the end of the episode. We always love to bring you here on the wild card section, something cool in the real estate industry that maybe you can specialize in something that you can learn about, perhaps make some money in. And what we've got this week is talking about electric vehicle charging stations, right? With Joe Biden, we talked about Joe Biden's big potential investment into green infrastructure with his infrastructure bill. People have been talking a lot about electric vehicle charging stations and how can that improve my property value, right? And it might seem like a very easy thesis, right? Oh, people are going to have more electric vehicles. We were just talking about today how GM is going to sell only electric vehicles by 2035. California is going to ban the sale of non-electric vehicles by 2035. So that's coming. That's coming. But so it should seem obvious, right? Install a bunch of chargers. I'm going to profit, right? As a building owner, as a real estate owner. It's not actually that simple. So let's take a look at actually this first article here from BizNow that Tesla is seeking property owner partnerships for supercharger sites. So how Tesla works is that they go out and they have probably one of the largest proprietary super charging stations, charging networks in the country. And they have locations in a bunch of places all over the United States, typically off of highways, right? So that you can right pull off right off the highway and charge your car in a pretty convenient location. And they're looking for real estate property owners to partner with to expand its network. So they promise property owners that the company will manage construction, operation, and maintenance of superchargers. And because the navigation system of Tesla vehicles will direct drivers to supercharger sites, this will bring new and repeat business to your location. And they might even start you know, adding diners and drive-in theaters to their electric vehicle charging sites because you want to capture 
the people that are going to be going there in their electric vehicles. So if you want to partner with Tesla, you're not going to get actually paid by installing a Tesla charging station on your property. You're not actually going to get paid from them, but they're going to cover the cost of the build out of those charging stations for free. And you're going to get the increased traffic. So the key is you have to be a property that can take advantage of increased traffic, like a retail oriented property, more likely because an office building, you know, you're not necessarily going to make more money when you have more eyeballs looking at your office building, but a retail building where you're trying to sell things, the more people that come through your space, the more money you're going to make. So these are the types of considerations that you want to take into consideration if you want to look at potentially partnering with Tesla in installing these supercharger stations on your property. And they say there's more than 20,000 supercharger stations worldwide. A recharge as good as 200 miles of driving takes about 15 minutes. And the market for electric vehicles, as well as the demand for charging stations, is going to predict the entire EV industry might grow into a $5 trillion market over the next 10 years, up from 20, 250 billion in 2020. Okay, guys, that's, that's a, what, a 20 times increase in the next 10 years? It's going to be something that you want to be looking at, be a part of. But how, so how do these electric charging stations actually make money on their end, right? So in order to have widespread EV adoption, we're going to need a lot of public char car charging networks. So let me break down for you guys exactly how these companies makes money. So it can be on the revenue side, right? With membership fees and station usage fees. So these network operators, and one of these is ChargePoint perhaps, is going to make business off of operating your charging network. The vast majority of charging network operators have a membership service. So in order to actually charge your car there, you have to pay them a membership service that a membership fee that's going to be on your phone or it's going to be on a card that you can RFID scan, right? And sometimes membership can be free or otherwise there's a monthly fee. EVGO, the American network EVGO, for example, has several membership tiers, one of which is free and others entail a monthly fee. And, you know, if you pay a higher monthly fee, then you're going to have lower charging rates, right? Based on how much you use is going to be how much the paying for the monthly fee is going to be worth for you. And they make money because they charge uh, either a per minute, per hour, or per kilowatt hour fee for the amount you charge up. So the more you charge up, the more it's going to cost you, just like filling up with gas, right? Some charging stations don't charge a fee at all, and they instead just put advertising there. Those are pretty few and far between. You know, you're usually going to have to pay for your electric vehicle. And so they there's there they might offer it to gain customer goodwill, right? And this is where, as a retail store, there are actually people who pay other charging stations to bring them to your site. So we were talking about Tesla before. We're talking about Tesla, how they'll come in and cover the cost for free. There are companies like ChargePoint that you as the real estate developer, you actually have to pay to bring them in because you're hoping that having the charging stations on site are going to bring in more traffic, right? And so that is something to consider. It's not just like, oh, these stations bring a station, you get more money. 
some stations will actually charge you as the business owner and charge the end user a fee. And now, obviously, I could be an office building, I could be Google, and all of the costs might be covered by my office provider, Google, right? Because they want all their employees to come in. And then I, as a, a worker at that office building, can come in and charge my electric vehicle for free. But those are much more rare than actually you just have to go in and both the end user and the real estate owner has to pay for these fees as well. So the question is, can electric car charging be a business, right? That's what we want to know. Can we make money off of serving this demand like gas stations, right? And this article talks about how gas stations are a business. They sell gasoline to drivers and make a profit. But charging for electric cars is actually very, very different because there's 26,000 EV charging stations with 86,000 plugs and a much larger number of home charging points. They're actually not businesses, so you can't just operate them like you might think a gas station would because electric vehicle buyers tend to be homeowners and they tend to install some sort of charging at home. So even though they have to buy consumer electric prices, they'll usually charge at night when it's cheaper to actually charge their vehicle. So you're kind of competing with a different market because if everyone had a gas station at home, they could fill up gas at home because everybody had pumps coming out of the ground. You best believe that gas stations on the open road wouldn't be making that much money because everyone's going to be filling up their gas at home. It's so much easier and convenient to have your gas, be, even if it was a few drops at a time and not very fast, right, to be the analogy. You know, you let your car sit there overnight, and then by the, by the end, it's probably your gallon tank is probably going to be filled. So it's the same sort of analogy for electric vehicle owners, right? They can charge at home, so they don't need as much space outside. So... Or, or much as much opportunity to charge outside. So as they said here, other people charge at work, especially if their workstation offers them free charging. And with modern generations of EVs with 200 miles of range, owners can charge at work or home and never need to do any more charging while out of town. So this is why we can't necessarily, even on these retail sites that are paying to bring people in, you might not be bringing any people in because think about five years from now, when your electric vehicle has 300 miles of range, 400 miles of range, I mean, you're never going to have to charge at the mall. So who knows? These stations may not actually be that profitable. See, they may users may see EV charging stations as stores and parking lots, but have no great motive to use them, though they will use them if they are free. So a lot of them are free, put there as a perk for customers, or as, again, just to promote green driving, but many drivers don't even bother plugging into free ones. It's a hassle, and a typical parking stop for shopping and dining won't would be unlikely to get even $1 worth of electricity. So for those of you who wanted to potentially go become new gas station landlords, but for electric vehicles, it's probably not going to work, right? See exactly right here, If what gasoline would be like if everyone had gas station at home. No one would be charging outside. The point being said is that charging is not really a business and 
it's going to be very difficult for you to make money on this. The biggest opportunity, if there is one, is for non-homeowners. These are going to be for commercial drivers and people who are making big trips. For example, if I have a 200-mile car range, right? Um, Tyler and we go down to Chattanooga all the time. And when we travel from Nashville to Chattanooga, we stop in Manchester, Tennessee, because it's halfway there. And it's a pretty good place to recharge the station. So actually, the most important charging stations that might actually make money are going to be in kind of the halfway in between points between major travel destinations. So if I'm driving between Atlanta to Nashville, Chattanooga is going to be a great place to have car charging stations that cater to travelers. And also, they're going to be needing to cater to commercial drivers as well. Commercial drivers is where you're going to be making the money here, potentially, if there is money to be made on these charging stations. And finally, most important part here is that EV stations can add value to your property if you're residential, if you are a homeowner. You can make the property more attractive to future home buyers, and you can potentially comply with HOA laws and building standards, and those HOA laws and building standards are mostly in California right now, but it's likely to come at some point in time to the rest of the country too. And so you can extrapolate this to multifamily apartment buildings because as a multifamily tenant, right? You don't have a garage. You don't have your own private garage where you can hook up a charging station into to charge at home. So a way to dive, to diversify and distinguish yourself from the competition as a multifamily apartment building owner is to actually provide these charging stations and potentially charge fees or share fees with these company, with these charging companies like ChargePoint, or even just provide them as an amenity so that you can attract more tenants. Because as there are more and more electric vehicle drivers, you think about these multifamily buildings, you know, if in 20, 20 years from now, if everyone's driving an electric vehicle, because no more gas powered cars are being sold, you're going to want a charging station in every parking spot in your multifamily building. So that's a great way to think about this is where the opportunity to make money in electric vehicle charging stations is, is targeting non-homeowners, people traveling, commercial drivers, and multifamily apartment building owners can potentially set themselves way ahead of their competition if they can offer these charging stations. So that's what we have to talk about here today about electric vehicle charging stations. Tyler, it's kind of a shame because when I started looking into this, I was really hoping that I could show to you guys, hey, this is how much money you can actually make if you install electric vehicle charging stations. But because of the unit economics of it, because people have charging ports at home, because these charging providers often have weird fee structures, it's not that simple as I install a charger, my building value goes up. But for certain select groups like multifamily, I think you can see actually a lot of opportunity there for those guys. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. I, I, I agree. I mean, you know, we had lo started looking into this because we want to offer this in our development projects. We want to offer this at our shopping centers, at our office buildings, but it almost doesn't make sense. And those are the those are the exact kind of properties where you think it would. 
So maybe office buildings could be one too, right? Because you know you're typically parked there sometimes four to eight hours a day, depending on what kind of uh, what kind of user you are. So maybe office buildings could still be an opportunity. But I agree. I mean, if you're going to if you're going shopping, I mean, how often are you in in a shopping center for over an hour, right? I mean, not very often. So uh, it'll be it'll be interesting to see where that shakes out. Because man, I mean, I, I can plug my Tesla into a you know regular wall outlet. Um, and charge it overnight. So awesome. Well, that is it for this week's Commercial Real Estate Investor Weekly Update. If you are joining us on YouTube, don't forget to like and subscribe so you can keep getting these notifications each week when Andy and I go live, Mondays, 5.30 p.m. Central. If you're listening on the podcast, don't forget to rate and review so that we can keep bringing you guys this awesome content, and we will see you next week. Uh